today is day five of our winter 2022 seven-day session. It's the 20th of July. And we're going to um, continue where we left off, talking about um, pitfalls. And um, we were talking about physical pain. Kuo says, if you become distracted by pain, then practice the following. First, make sure the body is relaxed. Temporarily put aside the method. Put your awareness on the whole body and take some time to relax it from head to toe. Just as we learn to do when establishing a foundation of relaxation for practice, go through the whole body, relaxing each area as you go. Relaxing is important because you are short-circuiting the mechanism that causes the body to become tense and stressed. Second, isolate the sensation. The whole body is not burning up. There's only one or maybe two areas that feel uncomfortable. This is a generally. Don't exaggerate, but do a reality check on what's happening. There may be sensations in the left knee that are different from the rest of the body. There may be a couple of other areas that are different. When it comes down to it, maybe there's only one area where you're experiencing discomfort and difficulty. The rest of the body can still be relaxed. So this is a kind of um, reality check um, strategy he's suggesting to use our rational mind to really look at what's going on rather than um, slip into into um, a panic about what's happening. This third one is one I haven't heard before. He says, third, avoid the label pain. We label out of habit, and the habit may have formed over years. We all have a long history with this body. When we label it as pain, we are applying an emotionally charged word to something that is just sensation. The word pain triggers a number of emotions and thoughts and mental images that carry us away from the actual experience of the body right here in this moment. Some people start catastrophizing in these situations, telling themselves that they may be doing irreparable harm to their body if they don't move, that if they continue to sit, they may end up never walking again. Um, I think we've all experienced some variety of that kind of a a thought, especially the one about doing um, damage to the body, not being able to continue with the sashin, things like that. Our minds tend to get carried away with these dire proclamations. Or another very common one is imagining that because the pain is this way right now, it's going to be twice as bad tomorrow or um, three times as bad on, on in, in a day after that. 
So we have these dark proclamations, but we have to remind ourselves of our experience in the past with pain, that, that pain can, can completely disappear when we stand up to do kinhin, or that uh, pain that we thought was, was um, an injury uh, is completely gone after the block of sitting. He says, what was excruciatingly real one minute melts into nothing the next. So how real was it? And we can also remind ourselves that when we have experienced intense leg or knee pain in the past, we've ended up being able to move around just fine after the sitting period was over. As we have said many, many, many times before, this kind of pain, dull aches that intensify but then go away when we stand up, are really par for the course in, in uh, sitting. We'd, they're just going to be a part of our sitting sooner or later. What we have to be more careful of is sharp shooting pains, which indicate an injury, or something that when we sit, it gets worse, and injuries, for instance, and um, we don't we don't want to be injuring ourselves further in any way. So we have to change our behaviour if that's the case. If the, if we're um, doing some kind of uh, posture or way of sitting that is is exacerbating an already an already existing injury. And we have to be careful getting into the postures that we don't cause an injury, do it very mindfully and carefully. Fourth, experience. What we are actually experiencing in this moment is changing sensation, just that. If the sensations are predominant and they are overpowering our method, then we can stay with the awareness of these one or two areas and be aware of the changing or different sensations. Don't label, just experience. What is it? Be open to it. I think this being open to it is, is a huge thing. So being open to it means we can start to appreciate uh, the way it changes, it fluctuates. If we find the pain is excruciating, then we just simply change the posture. It's not a big deal. It is best, however, to move as a to not move as a, as a reaction. All of our lives, the way we've lived, has been reactionary. So, if we decide to change the posture, it is best if we do it slowly and mindfully, not in a reactive way. I've read somewhere somebody suggests that um, one not move at the first impulse to do so because that may just end up in our being fidgeting and the next the second posture we take is just as uncomfortable as the first but to to really see if we can wait until we've been through several impulses to move
course, it's recommended to not move it if at all possible, but there are exceptions to that. So he's talking about moving in a deliberate fashion and not as a, as a knee-jerk reaction to a discomfort. If we, re we react, it will be never-ending. We will be changing posture again and again, and we will never get, be able to settle. So we move in a deliberate and relaxed way, and as we do, isolate the changing sensations. No words, no labels. We just watch the discomfort disappear or lessen in intensity. Then we can return to our original method. Never make pain into a thing. Cultivate a state of vibrancy and wakefulness, not blocking anything. I think this is the, the a very important thing to be reminded of, that we, we, we make pain into a thing and uh, we try to um, distance ourselves from that thing and in the process we tense up around the thing and intensify its, its presence because of that. But if we, if we see pain as a process, uh, not, not as solid as we thought, then that can make a huge difference. And if we do really um, not fight it, then um, we may experience this, this uh, phenomenon of it um, disappearing, or at least receding into the background. The pain is there, but it's no longer something we're fighting with. It's just there among many other sensations that we might be experiencing at that moment. He says, cultivate a state of vibrancy and wakefulness, not blocking anything. Now, Guogu is talking from a uh, point of view of... Uh, uh, silent illumination practice, so um, just receiving all sensations that arrive and um, not rejecting or clinging to anything. Um, it's not so different if our, if our practice is the breath or a question. It can, can be as a, a kind of technique. We can just move the breath or the question to the painful area, breathe through, say, the knee or the, the hip, or um, bring the question to, to that area. What is feeling this pain? What these, these um, techniques do is they help us to unite with whatever is occurring rather than, than um, pulling back from it. We, we, we then embrace the um, body at this moment, whatever it's going through, rather than separating ourselves from it, which is a strange thing to do, given that it's our body. The pain is, is um, an aspect of us, our reality, in that moment. Much less solid than we often think, but still... 
who and what we are in that moment. skipping around the same um, section on pitfalls. This one is headed um, Awareness versus Self-Consciousness. Sometimes practitioners are confused about the difference between awareness and self-consciousness. This confusion arises because most of us are so used to our inner dialogue that we take it as awareness. Self-consciousness is the habit of talking to ourselves, objectifying ourselves, sometimes even criticizing ourselves. I shouldn't do this. I should be doing that. Why is this happening to me? Why me? I'm not good enough. I wish others would see me. All these different things, the self-referential um, of the self-referential mind. This mind oper operates with this constant commentary. And, and one of the, the, the functions of this constant commentary is that it creates our sense of self. Um, some, some years ago, used a book in Taisho um, by a neuroscientist who had a stroke and um, the the part of the brain that that is the, the kind of engine for this commentary this um, self-referential commentary is called the default mode network um, was was knocked out in, in her her stroke was complete. She lost, she couldn't speak and many other things. But but one of the things she experienced was what she called a kind of nirvana. Um, it wasn't nirvana, but it was definitely a release from that inner voice that that constantly comments on things. It changed her whole way of of seeing the world, um, even after she got better. Self-conscious is not necessarily bad. It is natural. Its function allows us to think, analyze, judge, and come comment on what's going on with us and how we are doing in the world. So this ability to objectify ourselves is not really a problem in itself. The problem comes when we identify with these comments, turning them against ourselves to criticize. This is not awareness. So he's beginning to make this distinction between self-consciousness and awareness. We are conditioned by our family upbringing our social networks and norms, and our own fixations. There's a reason why we are the way we are, and it has to do with the way we were raised, the way we were socialized, and the things we learned from our parents, teachers, and so on. Buddhism also recognizes that we are the products of our actions, karma. Yet all of these experiences bring about 
a unique individual path by means of which we can realize our true potential. We can reflect on our actions in order to be more skillful, but we don't need to fixate on a critical self-narrative. In our introspective, in introspection, we may recognize, wow, that was selfish of me. I should apologize and avoid doing that again. The thing is, we have to be conscious of why we are the way we are and make an effort to change. If we don't make a conscious decision, then we just continue to replicate our lives by following in the footsteps of our father or mother or those who have had an impact on us. Um, Carl Jung said that um, uh, to not repeat the mistakes of our parents was the, the task of a of a, a conscious life. We don't say, well, I'm just like this. Actually, everyone is selfish, so why shouldn't I be selfish too? I'm happier this way. I've got to take care of myself first, right? Of course, there are, there are a lot of people who, who do have this kind of justification for their behavior. It's a free world, isn't it? He continues, we should be happy, it's our prerogative. But to be happy is not to limit ourselves to the same old narrative of me, I, and mine. We need to expose our habit patterns, embrace them, transform them, and let them go. This is um, similar to a, f a formula that uh, Master Sheng Yin had with these four steps. Um, and they were also the, implicit in Darlene Cohen's emphasis on accepting all our uh, emotions, even the most uncomfortable ones, because we have to start with this exposing our habit patterns, bringing them into the light, into the air, where we can see them, then we can embrace them, transform them, and let them go. He says, the difference between introspection and self-consciousness is self-grasping. They have a different flavor. I think we can all recognize this, that, that the, the, the self-consciousness um, we experience its, its grasping quality in the way it goes on and on. It repeats itself. And we've heard it all before, haven't we? The self-talk that we, we have going on inside our head. But uh, introspection of, of seeing oneself clearly and, and, and making changes, that has a, a fresher quality about it. Self-consciousness is different than awareness in practice. Awareness is more fundamental. It is an intrinsic quality of mind by means of which something can be directly experienced. It doesn't involve a running commentary, and as such, it is different from self-narrative or self-criticism. 
In our meditation, we allow awareness to naturally experience our method of practice without comments or judgments. We try to be 100% on the method. Come back again and again to this notion of experience. This is the great, the great mystery of being live, alive, that we experience this world. Anything, anything, any sensation or um, thought that that we have is being experienced by the mind. Mind with a capital M. Mind is always always a participant. Whatever we do, whatever we see or hear, that's awareness. When our awareness is deluded, it attaches to what we perceive, whether it is self or others and may subsequently give rise to all sorts of mistaken notions and ideas. When awakened, awareness responds to situations effortlessly without reifying any perception, without self-reference. In our practice, we are focusing the mind so it engages with the method without giving rise to subsequent concepts, concepts or deluded thinking. In time, the experiencing awareness merges with the method. So we're we're working to um, clear away um, the, the 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 dross the the. Um, of self-referential thinking and uh, clean clean up that 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 mind so that it just is a direct experience self-consciousness is quite common in meditation that's that's a bit of an understatement. I think we all we all struggle with our self self referential thoughts in zazen. Whether they're grosser or more subtle, they're there. Practitioners try to use the method in a contrived way by talking to themselves while they're using it. For example, when strong emotions arise in meditation, they may try to suppress them by saying, okay, let it go, let it go. But the emotions actually proliferate. This is because they are no longer using their method, but rather have slipped into self-consciousness. Moreover, they have solidified their emotions into discrete ideas or narratives. Saying let go is not using the method. It's just being self-conscious, and so it doesn't work. We have to return to experiencing the method in order to be free from these passing emotions. It's using the practice or, or um, being with the practice 
is like it's like being kind of at the coal face of our mind. We're we're we're, sh- we're shoveling coal. Um, we we're not. It's not just conceptual or abstract, but it's an actual uh, movement of the mind that we undertake when we shift our mind from whatever is arising that's that's distracting back to the breath or the koan or this moment that was sitting here. And that, that shift in our attention, that, that um, deliberate shift is laying down new neural pathways in the brain. It's, it's, a, it's an act of, of letting go not just um, an, um, a concept that we're um, expressing and saying something like, let it go. And over time, that, that catching ourselves in thought and shifting the attention or widening the attention, in the case of uh, Shikantaza, um, that's what's really... Um, transforming our our mind. You could say, in a a sense, where we do the heavy lifting. Awareness in practice is simply experiencing with openness. It is just being. Awareness is not something we have to fabricate. It's already here every moment. The key is to not allow awareness to congeal into ideas, concepts, and narratives. The second we reify awareness into a thing, it becomes self-conscious thinking. Quote, yes, my grief is terrible, and it's all because of him. Close quote. We're, We're through. Delusion has won. We're trapped in self-reference. So do not be attached. Keep awareness open as it already is. The way to not solidify our experiencing is to have the right attitude. The way to cultivate the right attitude is to relax the body, to ground the method or whatever arises in the body. This means to embody the experiencing of each moment. The body is the anchor for experiencing. This is probably the most important element of practice. It's up to us to cultivate the right attitudes and relaxation, not only during meditation, but in all aspects of life, because life itself is practice. Practice is not a a part-time activity. It's a, a change in the way of our being. Slowly, slowly chipping away at our defenses and our uh, armor, and softening and opening. And this is the case with with all of the practices that we do. The next uh, section is headed ghost caves. 
a common pitfall for seasoned practitioners is dullness, a hazy state of mind or some kind of fixation on stillness or a false experience of clarity. Whenever there is some kind of fixation, then we drop the method. I can, uh, couldn't count the number of times uh, people will come to Doksan and, and tell, them, tell me about the, some wonderful state they're having, but then be quite surprised when I'm concerned that they're not, they're not practicing their, their, their practice anymore. They're just, just um, preferring to just enjoy the, the, the state of mind that they've entered. This is where um, you could say that pleasant, pleasanter experiences are in some ways more challenging than unpleasant ones because um, we tend to um, settle down there, make a nest. Whenever there is some kind of fixation, then we drop the method. Some take the stagnating, thoughtless mind to be samadhi or deep meditative absorption but it is not. In Chan, we call the various types of stagnation and stillness or clarity dwelling on the dark side of the mountain in a ghost cave. No wisdom will come out of such states. Why? Because grasping is present. Yes, Darlene Cohen was also looking at this and she, she, the label she used was a slave in the realm of the gods. A slave in the realm of the gods, in bondage, in other words. We we enter bondage when we when we grasp at something. Even serious meditators often perceive thoughts, no matter how subtle they may be, as the enemy. Because we tend to be repulsed by wandering thoughts in meditation, we focus on the stillness that arises and hold on to it. We may then try to lock our minds in the state in which thoughts are absent. Deep down, we think that this is the point of meditation, to have a mind free of thoughts. This is a misunderstanding of the principles of practice, and it is criticized by Huang Nung in the Platform Sutra, the sixth ancestor. He says, Good friends, the way must flow freely. How could it stagnate? When the mind does not abide in things, the way flows freely. When the mind abides in things, this is tethering yourself. For you say that always sitting without moving is it, then you're just like Shariputra, berated by Vimavillamakirti. Say that sentence again. If you say that always sitting without moving is it, then you're just like Shariputra berated by Vimalakirti. This is a reference to the Vimalakirti Sutra, the Sutra of the great layman practitioner. And in, in the Sutra at one point, uh, Vimalakirti berates Shariputra, who is um, representing... The, um, the classical part of Buddhism that 
is seen by the Mahayana to be attached to purity and stillness. If you say that sitting, that always sitting without moving is it, then you're just like Shariputra berated by Verna McCurti. We can, it's, the ego is so wily that we can, we can um, become attached to sitting, come attached to the stillness of sitting. And that's not, not what it's all about. He continues, the way or the Tao is awakening. The true nature of our mind is already free. It is only deluded when it is caught up with things. Attaching to states is to be caught up with things, including stillness. Huaynang also states, in this teaching of seated meditation, one fundamentally does not fixate on mind, nor does one fixate on purity or stillness. If one is to fixate on the mind, then one should know that the mind is fundamentally a delusion. If you realize that the mind is like a phantasm, you also realize that there is nothing to fixate on. If one is to fixate on purity, then one should know that because our nature is fundamentally pure, it is through deluded thoughts and that suchness is concealed. Just be without deluded thoughts and the nature of pure is pure of itself. Just be without deluded thoughts and the nature is pure of itself. From the Chan perspective, fixating on a state of no thought is a form of meditative absorption. Chan does not emphasize absorptions. Why? Because the mind is not a thing we can fixate on. Our true nature is just experiencing moment to moment, which is a fluid, natural, open wakefulness. It can't be used as a meditation object. Fixing on mind Purity or stillness are just methods, constructs, expedient means to concentrate the mind so as to diminish wandering thoughts, so the nature of mind can reveal itself. I think here of um, the story of uh, Bodhidharma and Hui Ke. Bodhidharma is meditating in a cave, and Hui Ke comes asking for the teaching, and um, Bodhidharma kind of um, pushes him away, re rebuffs him, and finally Huayke um, uh, cuts off his arm and says, your disciple's mind is not yet at peace. I beg you, teacher, please give it peace. And then Bodhidharma replies, bring your mind here and I will set it at rest. And then sometime later, we don't know how much later, Huayke comes and says, I have searched for that mind, but I cannot find it. And Bodhidharma says, then I have put it to rest.
he continues, This is not a criticism of states of meditative absorption, since they are natural fruits of concentration practice. But Chan practitioners do not seek to experience them. The fact is, most practitioners are struggling with drowsiness, dullness, and other subtle forms of passivity, and all of these can become an object of attachment. The last thing they need is to chase after those states of stillness. Sometimes in sustained meditation practice we come to a fork in the road where the mind is settled but only with a few subtle thoughts. At this juncture, two things can happen. First, the mind can slip into a hazy state where lassitude sets in. If we sit here for a long time, the method becomes vague and eventually the mind rests in a state of dark nothingness or stagnation, as I mentioned above. No wisdom can ever occur here. Sometimes the cause is bodily fatigue. This is, this is important to recognize. This may be why we're feeling particularly dull. Because we're generally conditioned and influenced by the body, when it is a fatigue, our minds become hazy. If we are seasoned practitioners, we may be able to sustain our posture for a long time due to years of practice. However, when we're in this state, we may be subtly moving our bodies, swaying, for instance, even when we don't recognize it. Our energy may also be very low. If we get used to this state, every time we sit, we'll experience this low energy and its accompanying hazy state of mind. It is essential that we therefore do something about this, that we notice it at the onset and sharpen the mind right away by clarifying our method and resting our bodies if we are truly fatigued. Sometimes it may not be not true fatigue, but a habit tendency that is set in, so that we, so we must examine this closely. If unaddressed, a hazy state becomes very difficult to uproot. Well, the, the, the question that I think naturally arises when we hear this is, well, how do I... Um, brighten up, clarify my mind if I'm in this, this hazy state. It's, it's, um, we've just got to do the best we can. Um, we can, we can um, strengthen our posture, sit, sit up straight, um, open our eyes more, um, maybe refresh our, our practice by reminding ourselves about why we're here and what we, why we um, use our time in this way. Remember the, um, this precious uh, human body of leisure and opportunity that we have. And then, and so, sort of give it, give us, give ourselves a bit of a, um, a talking to, in this way, and then come back to the practice. Noticing when our mind is dull is is the first step, though. 
and challenge in itself because if, if it's too dull then it won't even be aware of the dullness so to speak so it's a really matter of about taking ourselves in hand and um, and, and uh, summoning our energy we can sometimes you can use the the the, um, the energy of the kyosaku to um, energize one's practice. That's one of its its uh, purposes. You can uh, write a note to the monitors if you want to be hit more frequently or or more vigorously. It's important to note that illusions and hallucinations may also appear at this fork in the road, and things buried deep in the unconscious may come up. One may see light or other phenomena. These are all what I consider scenery, not to be held onto, analyzed, or made into narratives. They're, they are signs of our deepening concentration, but... Um, Scenery is a good way to describe them. Things seen along the way, you could say. And, and with dreams and things, I sometimes will recommend to somebody that they just um, uh, put it down on paper so that they can come back to just being, being in the present moment. And that then if they are so inclined, they can... They can um, make friends with the, the dream narrative later on. But, but certainly they're a sign of, of uh, some movement in, the, in our um, unconscious mind. A variant of this first fork of the road is a state, a stale kind of stillness. It arises when there are no wandering thoughts and we also let go of the method of, met of meditation, something which would, should never really happen intentionally. Because the state is so alluring and we're so captivated by it, we stop the method and just rest in the stagnation, as I was already mentioning this. Of course, if we drop the method, that's just the beginning of the end. The mind generally slips into a hazy state or eventually becomes scattered again. If it's the former, we don't have too many wandering thoughts and the body is relaxed. Since we don't have too many wandering thoughts and the body is relaxed, we, st we stagnate in dead stillness. This is not silent, silent illumination because there, are no, there is no freshness, illumination or clarity. Sometimes we take the stillness itself as the method, creating a proximal state of no thought where we fixate on that. I've heard one teacher state that what he's doing is illuminating the silence by meditating on the space between thoughts. This is also a mistake. This teacher has taken silent illumination literally and has simulated a mental state of silence as an object. It is of course possible to make silence into a thing the space between thoughts and make it palpable, concrete, but it is just a mental construct. This created thing is a representation of a blank state of mind. 
We can certainly fixate on this object for a long time, and sometimes this state can be quite peaceful and alluring. If all, we all want peace after all. Our lives are chaotic and we want respite from this chaos. So we seek it, but in doing so, we fabricate a false state. No wisdom can arise here. In most cases, subtle thoughts are still present. It's just that we have learned to ignore them. This is why the platform scripture states, the mind is fundamentally a delusion. It's a very, um, very uh, say challenging statement. The mind is fundamentally a delusion. The mind is a separate thing, is a delusion. I think of those lines that we, we chant in affirming faith in mind. Mind is mind because of things, as things are things because of mind. Mind is dynamic, active. Well, our time is up. We'll, we'll stop here and recite the four vows. without number, I vow.